Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. You may know Pearl Clegg from her plays and her work as distinguished artist in residence at the Alliance Theater. One of those plays, Sit-In, is now an animated film that will air on our TV station, PBA, Sunday at 8 p.m. Pearl Clegg creates in all literary forms, and the many facets of her writing were acknowledged by Mayor Bottoms recently, as she named Pearl Clegg the first poet laureate of Atlanta. Later this hour, a conversation with Atlanta's official literary ambassador. Larger-than-life nests and a bug B&B are part of a new outdoor woodlands exhibition at Fernbank. The museum's education director, Sarah Arnold, will take us through some habitats found throughout the world. And... The intersections of photography, representation, and identity are central to a new indoor exhibition at the High Museum. Underexposed, Women Photographers from the Collection was curated by the High Museum Sarah Canal with Maria Kelly. They're with us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, Lois. Why this show now? Why did the High want an exhibition highlighting female photographers? Well, the origin of the show was actually the 100th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment, which the United States celebrated last year. And of course, the 19th Amendment uh, granted women, or at least most women, the right to vote. But of course, with COVID, our exhibition calendar shifted around a little bit. Uh, the museum really wanted to recognize, though, this important anniversary. Um, and so this exhibition seemed like the perfect moment to do so. More broadly, though, I think just as part of the museum's you know, larger mission to do more inclusive histories of art, this seemed like a perfect opportunity to really delve into our renowned photography collection and tell some of the fascinating stories about how women have um, really transformed the medium of photography in the last hundred years. 
The show is set up chronologically. Would you walk us through the different sections and how they relate to different eras of feminism? Sure. So the exhibition actually begins with a few early works from the mid-19th century, just around the origins of photography, as a way to show that women have always been at the forefront of the medium. But it really takes uh, steam at um, the period, you know, between the two world wars, around the emergence of what we might call the new woman, the sort of global phenomenon, um, women representing an ideal of progress and independence and professional success. Uh, so this period sort of loosely, you know, the early teens through the Second World War is then followed by a section that looks at the art that uh, many women made in, from the 1970s to the present using alternative processes and kind of taking apart the medium of photography and experimenting in multiple ways with how you can make photographs, you know, either photographs without a camera or looking back at older processes. The second half of the exhibition is really more thematic. We have a section looking at domesticity and how women have taken on and challenged the kind of traditional assumptions uh, of a relationship between femininity and domesticity. A wonderful section on women looking at women, kind of raising the question of whether there is such thing as a female gaze. And our last section that really looks at um, identity and how women photographers have used various strategies to explore and um, deconstruct, you know, issues around gender and sexuality and race and class. Hmm. Can we step back for a moment? You said something about taking a photograph without a camera. How does that work? Maria, do you want to jump in here? Sure. Um, there are a variety of ways that we showcase actually in the show of uh, taking a photograph without a camera. One such is actually from the very beginning of photographic history. It's called a cyanotype. And it's just exposing a photosensitive piece of paper directly to sunlight and then developing it from there. And there are artists who have sort of spun off that even to contemporary artists working today. Working on that, there are people who are using scanners instead of actually a camera. They're scanning different uh, works and objects onto a, a screen. And so there's a, a multitude of way that people are using these uh, more abstracted concepts uh, to create works. Who are some of the trailblazers with works on beer? Well, I, I'd like to think that pretty much everybody in the exhibition in one way or another is, is a trailblazer, at least in, in you know, their own sphere. But we definitely have women who are really kind of... Um, key for the history of photography, somebody like Berenice Abbott, who not only is a sort of renowned documentarian of New York, but also was a major promoter and supporter of photography. She was key in rescuing the negatives of the French photographer Eugène Atchet and bringing him to the United States. Uh, but she also was a scientific photographer. She worked for many years with um, MIT and uh, to create um, kind of photographic ways of capturing scientific uh, phenomena. So she's one such sort of pioneer, uh, or you can think about somebody like Margaret Burke White, who was the first, you know, created the inaugural cover for Life magazine, was a correspondent during World War II, capturing the German invasion of Moscow. 
um, as well as really the first woman to accompany Air Corps crews on bombing missions. So you see women who are pioneering you know, in photography, but also kind of um, taking center stage in arenas that have traditionally been considered sort of the, the sphere of men. Yeah, lost voices. There are some multi-generational pairings in the exhibition. For example, Barbara Caston's work next to that of a younger photographer, Megan Riebenhoff. Both are contemporary artists who use unusual techniques to capture an image. What are their processes and how are they different? Well, Barbara Caston, uh, her work almost looks like it's been photoshopped, but it's not. It's totally straight photography. The piece you'll see in our show is really vibrant. It's got lots of colors. There are a lot of different shapes. You're not entirely sure what you're looking at. And then you slowly resolve the scene to realize it's the High Museum, our actual building here. But she's introduced mirrors um, to sort of disrupt the scene. You're not sure what exactly you're seeing. She brought in a professional movie crew to help with lighting. And so her her approach is really just um, distorting what you would expect from, um, you know, a contemporary architecture, something really clean and simple and sort of turning it on its head to create these images. Um, as for Megan Riepenhoff, uh, I mentioned earlier the cyanotype process. She's actually working with that process. And uh, the interesting thing she's doing with it is she's taking these large sheets of uh, photosensitive paper, so light sensitive paper, and she's actually dipping it into bodies of water. So she's letting uh, ocean waves wash up on them. She's letting rain fall down on them. And the way that the chemicals run sort of actually allow the environment to imprint itself onto the photographs. So it's this sort of uh, tandem joint partnership with the environment in making those works. Oh, fascinating. There are quite a few Atlanta-based photographers featured. Was showcasing local talent a priority? I think that what we really wanted to do was to celebrate the highest collection, which is rich in Atlanta-based photographers. And, you know, we really also wanted to bring to the fore, you know, how the high through the generosity of many women in the community has been collecting the work of women photographers in the area and a notable figure here is Lucinda Bunnan, who both features in the exhibition as a photographer, but also as somebody who has really supported women artists throughout her life and has um, greatly supported the photography department. And it was when we were putting together this exhibition um, and afterwards we, we looked at our list and realized that you know, she'd been responsible for giving or helping to fund the acquisition of some 19 or 20 photographers in the exhibition itself. I think more broadly too, with the idea of being inclusive, um, it's important for us to recognize the talent in our own backyard. Uh, sometimes this can get lost as you know, museums want to be visible in a national spotlight. Um, but we have such a wealth of talent in this area. So it was really great for this opportunity to put these works on the wall. One of the photos that grabbed my attention was of Frida Kahlo looking in a mirror. And that was taken by the Mexican photographer, Lola Alvarez Bravo. You also have a striking photo by a South African photographer, Zanel Muholi. 
Was diversity another important consideration in the artists you feature? Absolutely, Lois. I mean, it's, it's a main concern of the Hyde Museum in general. And it was an important consideration for us putting together this exhibition. About 20% of the works we selected for the exhibition are made by women of color. We would like that number to continue to grow as we build our collection. One of the wonderful things about the Lola Alvarez Bravo photograph that you mentioned is that, you know, she's part of a little section we have of women photographers who've often been overshadowed by their relationship to men. In terms of thinking broadly about inclusive histories, it's also uncovering some of their stories, stories that have been sort of suppressed um, over the years. Not only are the artists from diverse backgrounds, their works are varied too. You and Maria spoke about some of the more unusual techniques. Can you tell us something about the self-portraits and landscapes, the collages and abstracts on view? One thing that we were very conscious of is that this is not a history of photography through the eyes of women photographers so much as a focused exploration of our collection through the work of women. But we also really wanted to think about ways in which women's creativity in photography came to the fore. So we wanted to show everything from Polish families, you know, very complicated collages uh, to seemingly straightforward portraits uh, by somebody like Renika Dykstra. Another concern of ours was, you know, how, how do we make a show out of all of this material? Right? We didn't want the only thing bringing these works together to be the, the kind of fact of gender. Um, rather, we wanted to come up with various themes in which we could allow these works, which are so individual and so diverse, to kind of speak to each other, which is why we came up with certain themes like identity or women looking at women or um, experimentation. I think the other thing, though, that emerged as we did this exhibition was we realized that you know there are very important links between women that we didn't know about and you know the example you know of somebody like Imogen Cunningham and how important it was for her to see um, somebody like Gertrude Casebeer make a career out of photography or the importance of Anne Brigman for Louise Dahl-Wolf. So we also tried to really bring out this sense of networks and influence and kind of the mutual dialogues between these different artists. Maria, this is for you as well as Sarah. How would you rate the progress of photography in terms of gender equality? Well, I think, I think it's something we try to tackle in this show. I there's obviously great gains to be made. One of the photographers we have on view is Kale Alford, um, and she brings an interesting perspective to that question as she's a war photographer. Um, she's a photojournalist who's covered culture, politics, and conflicts in the Balkans and the Middle East, but the work that we have in our show is focusing on the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq in 2003. 
and she went in unembedded. So instead of traveling with the US military, she went on her own and that allowed her the freedom to move around the country and connect with civilians, but it also placed her, of course, in much more precarious positions. But she was able to connect with these, you know, Iraqis that she was photographing and create these much more deep connections and emotional photographs from uh, those places. And she talks, to get to your point, she talks about being a woman photojournalist, war photographer, and says that it's, her quote is, we're confusing, we act and dress like men, but we're not. And in some cultures, strange men are not allowed to be in the same room with local women, while we tend to get treated as what she calls the third sex and are invited into both women's and men's spaces. So I think we're trying to approach this from a variety of angles in the show, um, both from self-portraiture, but also being able to look at different issues from you know a viewpoint that is distinctly feminine or just allows you a different angle into looking at the scene. Sarah, what grade would you give photography in terms of gender equality? Well, I think, you know, it depends on what we're comparing it to, right? I think photography has always been a highly democratic uh, mode of expression. And for that reason, for its accessibility, for its popularity, it's always welcomed women. And there have always been important women photographers. Uh, that being said, um, we're in the year 2021 and we're still doing shows around women photographers because they have not achieved, I think, the same level of exposure or market success as male photographers. And I think they still have to work harder. You know, we did deliberately call this exhibition Underexposed. It's kind of a play, of course, on the idea of exposure in photography, uh, but also in culture. But it's also, too, a look at our own exhibition histories. We noted in the exhibition every single work that we have acquired that has not been on view since at least 2000. And there's quite a number of them. So that tells me that we all have more work to do in this area. I'm incredibly excited by the work that many of my colleagues around the world are doing around gender uh, and photography, around race and photography. So I'm confident that we are on the upswing. Sarah Cannell, the High Museum's Curator of Photography, with curatorial assistant Maria Kelly. Together they curated Underexposed Women Photographers from the Collection. The show opens tomorrow and will be on view through August 1st. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, an outdoor exhibit in the woods at Fernbank. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. 
Habitats provide homes for all living things from the tiniest ant to the tallest tree. Now, a new outdoor woodlands exhibit at Fernbank Museum invites you to travel through habitats found throughout the world. Sarah Arnold is the Director of Education at Fernbank Museum. She joins us via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Good morning. I'm happy to be here. This show was put together by Smithsonian Gardens. Why did Fernbank want to bring Habitat to Atlanta? One of the things that we strive to showcase here is that people don't live next to these natural systems. We live in them. By creating this exhibit that allows us to show off the habitats we already have at the museum, it gives our guests a lens through which to explore what kinds of habitats they have around where they live. Ah, Fernbank Forest has an elevated path that takes visitors on a walk through the natural world. As guests enter wild woods, they'll see giant nests created by the Atlanta artist Laura Lewis. Sarah, would you describe these nests and what makes them special? So nests are one of the many types of habitats showcased in this exhibit. And nests in this particular exhibit showcase how birds engineer where they live. So they build these different styles of nests and those provide shelter for them from the elements. They provide a place for them to raise their young. And the exhibit has many different types of these nests. So you get to see different ways in which birds build them. So for example, one of the largest pieces of this exhibit is our replica eagle nest. It's a bald eagle nest. Now, eagle nests are known for being quite large. I mean, think of something the size of a six to eight foot dinner table. Wow. Massive. Yes. And what's neat about these nests is that eagles stay mated with the same mate for life, and they will come back to the same nest every year and add to it to the point that after years and years, these nests can be so heavy, the trees that they built them in can't support the weight anymore, and they fall, and then they have to start a new nest. Oh, that's sad that these loyal eagles have to downsize eventually. Eventually. Laura Lewis also contributed sculptures to a part of the exhibit. I have to say, I love the name. The bug B&B portion of the show. Would you tell us about the craftsmanship of her sculptures as well as the others that are part of this exhibition? Bug BNBs are essentially human crafted areas that bugs and insects and other kinds of invertebrates can live when you know the weather turns harsh. So it helps kind of sustain the populations of those insects and and other invertebrates. Now, the sculptures that come along with this particular section of the exhibit are really, really neat. They are larger than life wooden sculptures of 
a caterpillar, a mantis, a grasshopper, and they will be placed throughout the area of Wildwoods where we display our bug hotels or our bug bed and breakfast. (laughs) What do you serve them for breakfast, by the way? (laughs) Mostly leaves and twigs and others. Uh, Yeah, organic matter. Yeah, healthy food. (laughs) <laughs> yes, many of our of our invertebrates in this area are called decomposers. So I like to describe them as the forest cleanup crew. They take all of that stuff that falls to the ground and they break it down and turn it into healthy soil for new things to grow. Oh, so efficient. Nature is so efficient. Life in the balance, that part of the show, allows visitors to explore a variety of different biomes. Which biomes are featured, and what is the definition of a biome? So a biome is an area of land that shares similar characteristics. Usually the main ones are going to be temperature and precipitation. And what that does is it dictates what sort of plants and animals are going to be able to live in that space. So for instance, you know, we can think of a desert, you know, deserts in many cases, especially here in the United States are going to be hot and dry for the most part. So those are sort of the defining characteristics of American deserts. So you wouldn't expect to find plants or animals that require a lot of water in those areas. Now, the biomes featured in this exhibit at Fernbank, we do highlight North American deserts, we highlight uh, rainforests, we highlight tundra, which is almost like a cold desert, um, and we highlight some, some aquatic habitats as well. And what this particular section of the exhibit conveys is how all of these habitats are connected, what is special about them, and how even if we don't live in these biomes, what kind of small everyday choices can we make to help protect those for the future? Monarch and Meadows. The title is so pretty. That is another section of the habitat exhibition. What does Monarch and Meadows highlight? The Monarch and Meadows section of the exhibit showcases our pollinators and what other sorts of animals you can find in a meadow habitat. So meadows are going to be areas of land that are covered primarily by grasses and some small flowering plants. These are very, very important habitats for you know, small rodents, many insects, like you would expect to find many, many grasshoppers in this area. And of course, our pollinators like butterflies and bees and maybe some hummingbirds potentially. This is important because this type of habitat supports, well, a couple of things. Pollinators are very, very important to natural systems. Without them, we would not have any regrowth potentially, or it would be much less effective. So having a section of the exhibit dedicated, and especially in the monarch case, to displaying what a habitat for monarchs would look like and how we can create or protect habitat is important specifically for the pollinators. Thinking about the monarchs, they require 
a very specific plant in order to reproduce. Uh, many pollinator species do this. They're called host plants. The host plant in the case of monarch butterflies is milkweed. That is where they lay their eggs. That is where the caterpillar, the larva stage, that's where they eat and gain weight and pupate. So having milkweed is really, really important to protect monarch populations. One of the reasons that it's important to do it all over the United States is monarch butterflies are actually migratory. So they migrate from the U.S. all the way down into Mexico every year. So having a steady supply of milkweed the entire way down is critical for them. There are nine thematic sections overall in the Habitat exhibit, and together they encourage guests to explore the central idea that protecting habitats protects life. What does this exhibition teach visitors about our role in the natural world? I think that this exhibit shows our visitors that habitats are everywhere, everywhere. Again, people are not separate from nature. We are part of it. So the choices that we make, even at our homes and our gardens, they will impact some sort of habitat, whether it's the pollinators that live near our house or maybe even some amphibians that live nearby if there's a stream. If you look, you can find it. And if you pay attention, you are able to make choices to protect it. Sarah, I have to ask, out of the nine sections, do you have a favorite? I do. (laughs) The sign of the dragonfly section. This is a section that covers the concept of indicator species, which is something near and dear to my heart. An indicator species is a species that indicates the health of of an environment. With the dragonfly example, many people don't know this, but dragonflies lay their eggs in water and their nymph stage or their juvenile stage is aquatic. The nymphs are what we call somewhat sensitive or semi-sensitive to pollution. So if we do a survey of a creek or a pond, and we happen to find many of these dragonfly nymphs, we have a pretty good idea that that water is healthy. Mm-hmm. So that's, that is one of my favorite sections. And we, you know, outside of dragonflies, that's something that we actually do here at Fernbank. We participate in amphibian surveys, and amphibians are another indicator species. So when we go out into our creek in Fernbank Forest and we find a lot of salamanders and frogs, we know that the water quality out there is pretty good, and that's important to us. This show will be on view from Saturday, April 17th, until August 29th. So it's opening just in time for Earth Day, April 22nd. Will there be any special programming or celebration tied to Earth Day? Yes. On Saturday, April 24th, from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m., we are hosting one of our discovery days called Born to be Wild. It is all about the natural world and animals. 
We will have special themed activities going on during that time. It should be a lot of fun. It sounds like it. And at the end of April, Fernbank will take part in the City Nature Challenge. This is an international event aiming to get people outdoors and connected to nature. How can people participate? We definitely encourage everyone who can to participate. Uh, It is really easy. There is an app called iNaturalist. And if you download that app, all you have to do during the time frame of the Study Nature Challenge is use the app to take pictures of different species that you find outside. It can be plants, bugs, mushrooms, birds, anything, anything natural. And the app will help you identify what that species is. Now, the goal of City Nature Challenge is to get as many observations as possible. So if you really like snapping pictures, you'll be great for this. Just go outside, take some pictures, upload them to iNaturalist, and that will help our numbers, definitely. Sarah Arnold, your enthusiasm for nature is infectious. (laughs) That's a good thing. Thank you very much for talking with us about Habitat. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure and an honor. Sarah Arnold is the Director of Education at Fernbank Museum. The outdoor exhibition Habitat opens tomorrow and will be on view through August 29th. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Up next, Atlanta's first poet laureate. When it comes to writing, Pearl Clegg embraces all literary forms, poetry, fiction, essays, and theater. The many facets of her writing were acknowledged during the mayor's State of the City address recently, when Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms announced Pearl Clegg will serve as the city's first ever poet laureate. She joins us now. Pearl, welcome back to City Lights. Oh, thank you, Lois. Always good to be with you. Thrilled to have you and congratulations. What was your reaction when you found out about this honor? Um, I was almost overwhelmed. It's uh, it's such a wonderful thing to be uh, recognized for your writing. And it's so great to have a mayor who wants to create a position for a poet laureate in the city of Atlanta. So the fact that um, she honored me by choosing me as the first one was just really wonderful. And I appreciate it. And I'm humbled by it. And I, I hope that I am deserving of such an honor. Oh, there's no question about that. Now that you mention it, wasn't it the mayor who was on board with you and Saren Burnett, your husband, when you wrote In My Granny's Garden? Was it the mayor who helped you create the school's program for that? She has a wonderful program called the Mayor's Reading Club, Ah, where um, they publish a book every summer, and then 15,000 of them are given away free to school children in the uh, 
city of Atlanta. And my husband's there and Burnett and I um, wrote one about his experiences as a young child in his granny's garden. And she was um, was there when we read it to a group of children and kind of announced it. And Radcliffe Bailey, a wonderful artist, did the illustrations for us. And he actually went to junior high school um, with the mayor. So they had a good time kind of teasing each other at the big announcement because they could tell stories all the way back to when they were 12 and 13 years old. Oh, my goodness. Pearl, reading about your duties, it seems that Literary Laureate may be a more encompassing title. The Poet Laureate does have a centuries-old tradition and puts you in some rather esteemed company. What will your role as Poet Laureate of Atlanta entail? Well, I think the wonderful thing is that as the first one, you kind of get to carve that out um, for yourself. And I read the very official document um, appointing me, and I used to work for city government, so I remember the official documents that say, this is what you must do. But when I read it, it actually was kind of saying I should do what I'm already doing, Mm -hmm. which is certainly continue to write and produce work, but also to try to interest young people, especially in what poetry can do, what writing can do. So I hope to do more of that. I'm not sure exactly what shape that will take, but this is such a rich town for writers. There are so many wonderful poets and writers here so that my hope is that I'll be able to in some way connect that wonderful community of writers with some young people who might never have thought about writing poetry or never thought about themselves as poets so that they will understand that a poem does not have to be a big, complicated endeavor that takes you years to finish. My mother used to read Langston Hughes to us, and I remember one of his very small poems, and the poem is, I Wish the Rent Was Heaven Sent. Mm. Now, that's a great poem. It says everything that you need to know about that person who is worrying about their rent, so that I really hope that I can help people understand that poetry can speak to you where you are, because that I think is the great gift of it. It can be so immediate and so able to cut past your thinking, your intellectual brain and go straight to the heart. And Pearl, how revealing about your mom that she read you this exquisite poetry as a child. I know she also loved opera and music, and um, that's where you acquired your omnivorous taste in music, which we share. I thought about the fact that before devoting your life full-time to creative writing, as a very young woman, your job was speechwriter and press secretary for Mayor Maynard Jackson. You, You mentioned having some familiarity. Why fight City Hall when you can write for them, Pearl? (laughs) It just seems to provide such symmetry to your early and now accomplished career. We know what you have given this city. How has Atlanta informed or inspired your body of work? Oh, I think Atlanta is so crucial to my body of work. And it's it's really wonderful what you just said. I hadn't kind of connected the fact that when I worked in City Hall, I was struggling um, trying to balance my work as a speechwriter for the mayor and my work as a poet. And I remember one night up 
really late trying to write a speech and I finished the speech and now it's time for me to write my own poetry. And I couldn't get the mayor's voice out of my head and I could not love him more, but I did not want his voice in my head when I was trying to write a love poem. <laughs> That was not going to work. <laughs> but the the idea that going from that moment where I was really struggling and, and weeping sometimes about how would I ever get my poet's heart to survive City Hall and now to be the city's um, first poet laureate, it, it really is a wonderful um, arc of that journey. And I think it, it speaks to the fact that Atlanta has really become more than my home. It's really the place where I Put down roots and I grew up in Detroit. I love Detroit. But when I got here, I was so young, I was not quite 20, so that I really grew up here. I became a grown woman here. I understood what it meant to be an independent artist in the world. And I learned all that here while really being deeply rooted in the community um, that I'm a part of so that I could write about my neighbors and know that they would recognize themselves. So I could be a part of a community where people understood that I was a writer and it wasn't a strange thing. It wasn't an odd thing. It was like, oh, okay, there's a teacher, there's a nurse, there's our writer. Because I wanted to be a part of a community. I didn't want to be a rarefied writer somewhere, you know, off in the beach contemplating the world. I wanted to be a part of the world, figuring out how to make the words that I had and the words that I was searching for express the wonderfully rich, complex lives of my neighbors. I remember you once saying that writer's block has never been a problem. And in fact, you have many more creative ideas than there are hours in the day to work on them. Do you have multiple works in progress now? I do. I try not to do that as much as I used to. I used to have to juggle a lot more things. And I'm in a, in a wonderful position now where I can kind of define what I'm working on uh, more one thing at a time. But I still end up working on multiple projects. And I think the good thing about that is when you kind of get stuck in one, you can say, OK, let me go over and think what I want to do with this one. Let me see about this one. But I'm working on a play and a poem, um, and they're kind of uh, feeding each other, but they're very different. So that the, the good thing for me is that I can kind of go to one when another one is stuck, but I want to be able to focus most of the time as a writer on one thing as much as I can, because that's where you can get down past all that stuff that comes to you initially, where you say, oh, I can do this, I can do this. And you have to get rid of all of that and get down to, but what is the essence of it? What is the one thing that I'm trying to say in this piece? And how can I say it most simply, most clearly, in a way where my mother always used to say, poems are good for regular people. People should be able to be riding the bus coming home from work and read a poem and understand it. And I always remember that. How do you take this complex idea that you have and translate it into something somebody can read on the bus coming home from work. Hmm. I remember once interviewing Rita Dove, whose poetry I absolutely adore. And she was talking about the fact that she began as a fiction writer. And she said she loves novels and she enjoyed writing novels. But she talked about how she loved the density of language in poetry. 
And just hearing her say that and watching the way she kind of looked up when she said it, it it's something I'll never forget because a poem can just distill so much. I think that's absolutely true. And a, a poem can disarm you because you're not really... Um, coming to it with any defenses. When you come to a piece of fiction, it's such a long work that you have a chance to argue with that writer in your head. You have a chance to bring all your uh, reasons why this character could have done this or this character could have done that. With a poem, it's, it's usually a much more direct experience. And I really love that. As a playwright, I also think that writing poetry has been very helpful to me in listening to language. What is the rhythm of the language? You know, people on the stage in a play, we want them to sound like real people, Mm -hmm. but real people don't talk like that. Real people do not come up with these wonderful monologues when they're trying to confess something or talk about something. So that what we really have to do is balance wanting these people to sound like real people and also knowing that we have to heighten that language. And I think poetry has really been Um, integral to my process as a playwright, because I always want within the lines of that play, I want the magic that a poem can bring, where all of a sudden you feel something that you didn't even know was coming and you catch your breath. You know, there's no greater moment for a writer, I think, to, um, to imagine than if you're reading something or if actors are saying something you've written and you hear people gasp, a recognition gasp, when they're listening to it. That's when you say to yourself, okay, I got it right. They recognize the human part of what I was trying to say and their humanity responded to my humanity. And that's what we need. Oh, you've been the playwright in residence and now you are the distinguished artist in residence at the Alliance Theater. Will you be able to carry out the duties of Poet Laureate in addition to your work at the Alliance? Oh, absolutely. I think that the the two positions really complement each other because they're doing the same thing. You know, I'm trying to, to write as much as I can, as truthfully as I can. And I think that's true um, for me as a poet. And I know it's true for me as a playwright so that I don't see any conflict at all between the um, between the two positions. It's it's that same thing you were talking about before, you know, writer's block and all of that. It's like mm. there's just never enough hours to write all the things that um, that kind of float past my imagination. There's never enough time to do it. But these two positions, I think, actually encourage me to continue doing the work um, that I've been doing. And it's, you know, I was laughing with Zarin when I got this appointment because now I'm distinguished artist in residence and I'm first poet laureate. And we kind of laugh to ourselves because they sound so respectable and so <laughs> mature. And I think to myself, I used to be a wild child. I used to terrorize these streets. And now I am the distinguished artist in residence and the poet laureate. But I think that's the beauty of doing something over time, you know, where you don't have to do at 60 or 65 or 70, what you did at 25 and 35, you can't. So that what you have to do, I think, is embrace every part of the journey. And at this moment, you know, I get to laugh about um, that young woman who ran from City Hall because it was stomping on my poet's heart. And then to go back to City Hall and say, thank you, Mayor Bottoms, for allowing me to come back to City Hall as a poet. 
and to know that I can balance my activist life, my political life um, with my artistic life, that there doesn't have to be a conflict between the two. They each make the other one stronger. Mm. Pearl, I remember after Toni Morrison returned from collecting her Nobel Prize, she said, those Swedes really know how to throw a party. <laughs> and and I wonder, did, did they throw a party for you? Well, you know, we're still trying to be careful and be safe and all of that um, because of COVID so that they weren't able to have a party where I could go dance around City Hall or any of that. But I hope that when the dust clears a little bit, we will be able to. And uh, Zarin and I did sit on our front porch under that magnolia tree and drink some champagne. So that was a, a good celebration for a first poet laureate, I think. That is perfect. The acclaimed author, Teari Jones, acknowledges your inspiration in her novel, An American Marriage. In fact, she credits you with the title of her book and said that you thought it limiting to imply that the novel was an African-American marriage. How do you manage to address race head-on in your work, yet enable others to identify and find meaning through your writing? Well, I think that what people often say um, when they talk about writing is really true, which is the more specific you can get, the more universal you become. Because what we're all doing is trying to find the truth of something. And it's not the African-American truth of something. It's the truth. It's not the Chinese American truth of something. It's not the Japanese American truth of something, the Liberian truth of something. It's the truth of it. And I think that that um, understanding that truth is truth is truth expands a writer's imagination. When I went to uh, work at the Alliance Theater, I was a little nervous and I said to my husband, I'm kind of nervous about this because I'm an independent black playwright, you know, and now I'm going to work at the big white theater. And I was kind of fussing, fussing. And he said, you're looking at this all wrong. You're a great American playwright going to work at a great American theater. Go. And it removed all of my stress about as a black person, could I do this? Could I do that? And I became an American person participating in the fullness of American life, certainly from my own identity, which is as a Black woman, but also as someone who only recently, actually, since the election of Barack Obama, did I really identify as an American writer, because my relationship to America had always been adversarial. I was raised a Black nationalist, so that I was never thinking of myself as an American writer. And when Zarin and I had that discussion, it really allowed me to embrace a much wider canon, to see myself as a much wider um, canon of work. And when I talked to Tayari about her book, she was a little nervous about the American marriage title. And she liked it and she wanted to use it, but she was nervous about it. And I shared with her my conversation with Zarin and it kind of gave her the same feeling it gave me, which is it allows us to claim the space we're in without feeling like we're selling ourselves out for doing it, but to take everything we are into that space because we are America. We yes. Make America what it is. Alice Walker has a 
wonderful poem that includes the line, remember, you yourself are America. And I thought about that when I read it and said, what does that mean? How do I relate to all of the history of this country? And when you finally get to the point of, you have to, because it's your country. You were born here. It belongs to you. And that becomes a whole different set of considerations, which is wonderful. You know, writers are always looking for inspiration. What can I think about now? And just understanding that America is a country with all its flaws that belongs to me means I not only have the right, but I have the responsibility to fix it, to stand wherever I choose to stand, and to be a part of those voices that make it sing. I don't know if you just heard my gasp. (laughs) Well, thank you. I appreciate it. A gasp from you means everything. Spot on. And and Zarin's wisdom at the time, yeah. Uh, It's really really wonderful because sometimes he will um, say things to me that are so profound that I want to say, wow, that is so amazing. I never thought of that. But, you know, I don't want him to get the big head, so I have to say, oh, I knew that. I knew that. And then later I can come back and say, you really helped me think about something in a different way. And that's so important, and that's what I try to do with the other writers that I know, certainly with the young people that I work with at the Alliance, try to make them understand something in a way that they didn't before, because I know what that does. It opens your heart, it opens your brain, it opens your eyes, where you can say, wow, this is a bigger story. You know, why did so many of us become obsessed with Hamilton? Because it allowed us to step into American history and say, wow, this is our story, the same as it's anyone else's story. And that, I think, is the thing that writers are engaged in now, trying to expand what we think of as the American story and make sure that it means all of us, because we are. I mean, Alice Walker is the wisest woman in the world. And she said, remember, you yourself are America. And I believe her. Pearl Clegg is distinguished artist in residence at the Alliance Theater and Atlanta's first poet laureate. You can see a wonderful animated film of Pearl's play, Sit In, on PBA, our TV station, Sunday at 8 p.m. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. Our theme music is The First Time, written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Shelley Canavy is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. Have a safe and good weekend. And thank you for listening to member-supported WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. 
You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wab.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.